A great teacher's legacy is never confined merely to texts or rules. A great teacher challenges us to look at the world differently, to see everything in it that needs healing, and to rise up to the role that we ourselves have to play in repairing all that is broken. My name is Leah Leibowitz, and the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, is the teacher I look to whenever I feel a pang of despair. And I'm not alone. Last year, a few of our finest thinkers, writers, and activists got together to reflect on how the Rebbe's teachings continue to give us, to paraphrase a wonderful book on the subject, a social vision, a Jewish vision for a more perfect society working to mend the many rifts we've caused over time. In coming episodes, you'll hear about ethics and the economy, about religion and the environment, about spirituality and social justice. But first, here is one of our most notable environmentalists, a contributing writer to The New Yorker, a founder of the grassroots climate campaign 350.org, and a distinguished professor in residence at Middlebury College. In 2014, he received the Right Livelihood Prize, sometimes called the Alternative Nobel, as well as the Gandhi Peace Award. Here's the one and only Bill McKibben. What a pleasure to get to follow Eric and uh, reflect on that remarkable work that they're up to. One of the things that he didn't talk about so much, but that I think is really important to think about is the way in which in a new world, we get a new aesthetic, a new sense of what's beautiful and desirable. When people first proposed wind turbines off the coast of Massachusetts, the um, reaction was much as it has been sadly here in Vermont, I don't want to look at it. And it took some time to overcome that there. But I'm always reminded that a wind turbine is a uh, way to make the breeze visible, you know, and I'm reminded too of traveling in Tibet and watching in villages where people had very, very rudimentary little hydropower systems to power their uh, lives, that when the water came out at the end of the hydropower system, the last thing it did was turn a small prayer wheel and in the Buddhist tradition, each turn of the prayer wheel is another prayer offered up. So, you know, each time that big turbine spins and powers a house, it also is just a reminder about the breath that we find in the very first verse of Genesis blowing across the planet that we were given. I want to talk for a minute about the um, reason why what Eric's talking about is so important. And then I want to talk about the ways in which it's going to be brought to scale. One hopes in time to do some good. I wrote the first book about climate change for a general audience 32 years ago now, in 1989, when I was a young man. And at the time, the scientists were warning us about what was coming, and we ignored the warning. And hence, we now increasingly live in the world that they predicted. And it is a difficult, difficult world. So far, we've raised the temperature of the planet one degree Celsius. And that's been enough to kick off almost unlimited chaos and destruction. 2020 was the hottest year we've yet measured on this planet. 
and with it, you know, if it had not been the year of the pandemic, it would have been the year of the wildfire and the hurricane. We had conflagrations and blazes from Australia to Siberia to California to, in the late autumn, South America, where the world's largest wetland, the Pantanal, that stretches across Brazil and Argentina and Uruguay, 25% of the world's largest wetland caught on fire and burned. It was the year worth more hurricanes than any other. We got through our alphabet and we're deep into the Greek alphabet by the time the hurricane season finally drew to a close, illustrating, as always, the um, incredible injustice, unfairness of what's been unleashed. The last two hurricanes of the year blew into Central America, smacked the same spot in Nicaragua, and then did enormous damage in Honduras. The damage, in fact, in that country may have been equivalent to about 40% of Honduran GDP. By contrast, the largest storm ever to hit the U.S., Katrina, did damage equivalent to about 1% of our GDP. So basic bottom line, the less you did to cause the climate crisis, the sooner and harder you are hit. We're on a path right now to take that one degree Celsius and turn it into three degrees Celsius, maybe a little bit more by the end of this century. If we do that, we will not be able to have civilizations like the ones we're used to having. That's simply too much energy in this closed system, too much trauma, too much disaster. And so our job is to stop it. And we don't have very much time in which to do that. The climate scientists have told us that if we haven't transformed our energy systems, which they helpfully defined as cutting emissions in half by 2030, then the chance of meeting the climate targets we set at Paris just five years ago will have gone by the boards. So that's an enormous challenge, and it'll take many, many, many projects like the one Eric has just described to get us anywhere near that target. The good news is that the engineers have done their job, especially over the last decade. And above all, that means in lowering the cost of renewable energy in dramatic fashion. It's dropped an order of magnitude, 90% over the last decade, to the point where the sun and the wind are now the cheapest way to generate power across almost all the planet. That's very good news. It allows us to move quickly if we want to. The question is the wanting to part, and that's much harder. Eric is testimony to how long this can take. He's been working for a decade, and most of that's been on the project of getting approvals and permits and financing, not the actual building of the thing, which it turns out is the smallest part of the challenge in many ways. There is enormous amount of inertia in our systems, and there's an enormous, enormous amount of vested interest. The fossil fuel industry is one of the biggest industries in the world. And it's kept us from action for almost three decades by mounting a massive campaign of disinformation and deceit about climate change. Hopefully that denial flew south on the airplane with President Trump, and we will not be having to deal with that level of deception and confusion in the future. But it doesn't take away the enormous effort that we have to mount to overcome the power of those vested interests. So I'll end by saying that I think the most important parts of overcoming that, unless you're an engineer, at which point stay on your lab bench and keep building ever more efficient solar panels. But if you're not, 
the single most important things that most of us can be doing are building the big movements that allow us to change the zeitgeist, the basic sense of what's normal and natural and obvious. We've been doing that for more than a decade now, starting with things like 350.org, and now we have lots and lots of wonderful groups within this kind of movement space that are really are getting the job done. I think the most important work probably at this point may lie in changing financial systems. I was thinking today that it was a year ago in 2020, right before the pandemic took hold. What I was doing this day a year ago was getting arrested in the lobby of the Chase Bank branch nearest the Capitol in Washington, because Chase Bank's the biggest lender to the fossil fuel industry. Sent them a quarter trillion dollars over the last five years since the Paris Climate Accords. We hardly needed Donald Trump to sabotage them because the big banks and asset managers and insurance companies were getting the job done. But we're standing up to them and with some effect. The divestment campaign that we launched a decade ago is now the biggest anti-corporate campaign in history with about $15 trillion in endowments and portfolios divested. Banks like Chase are feeling the heat. In fact, a few weeks ago, they announced that henceforth their lending would be Paris compliant, an airy phrase that doubtless will take a few more people going to jail to fully flesh out, but nonetheless a sign that it's possible for people to move even the biggest institutions when they push hard. So I hope and trust we will continue to push hard. That's our job to make the promise of the engineering possible. 75 years from now, we will run the world on sun and wind because it's free. But if we wait 75 years or even 20 years to get there, then the world we run on sun and wind will be a broken world. So the job is to move with great dispatch and great speed. And that's why I'm so grateful to people who are doing that work.